In a couple weeks, we're going to celebrate a uniquely Christian holiday. And of course, it's been secularized and we have to deal with all the consumerism that comes with that. But the holy part in the holiday is all about Jesus. Amen. Around the time that, the, that Jesus was born, the Jewish nation was itching for the Messiah to appear. And yet today we still find Jews who are looking for the Messiah. Why are they still waiting for the Messiah? Uh, and if to them, Jesus was an imposter. He was a bad guy in their minds. Are they right is the question that we have to ask. Do we have this whole thing all wrong? There's a, a certain movement, even among Christians, uh, there's a certain movement back to Hebrew roots. In fact, there's a, there's a whole uh, series of articles uh, that you can subscribe to called Hebrew Roots. And there's something about this that it kind of seems attractive to us. Um, but there's, there's this question, do we have Jesus right that doesn't take a lot of poking around to find out what Jews today believe about Jesus. And, and you realize that what they believe about Jesus today is the same thing that the Pharisees and the religious leaders back in Jesus' day believed about him. And they believed the Messiah was going to come and usher in some great era of, uh, of peace after he conquers the Romans. And, uh, and Jews today believe similar things. They believe that Jesus isn't the Messiah because he didn't build the third temple, like Ezekiel 37 suggests. And he didn't gather all the Jews back to the land of Israel, like Isaiah 43 talks about. And he didn't usher in an era of world peace and end all hatred and oppression and suffering and disease, like it says in Isaiah 2 verse 4. And he didn't spread a universal knowledge of the God of Israel, which would unite humanity as one, like you find in Zechariah 14. And so Jesus couldn't be the Messiah, right? Well, in my particular reading of the Bible, when I look at it, I'm like, wait a second, all these prophecies are supposed to be fulfilled by the Messiah, but it doesn't say it's going to happen at the first time he comes. In fact, the first time he comes, it describes him not as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant, a lamb to be slain. And it's like they, they missed that somehow. Well, Jews believe also that Jesus couldn't be um, the Messiah because in order for there to be a prophet in Israel, the majority of the Israelites have to be living in the land of Israel. And since by the time of Jesus, um, a lot of the Israelites had been scattered around, Jesus couldn't be the, a prophet Messiah kind of person. And he'd have to bring them all back to Jerusalem in order for that to actually work. Well, so for them, they say that prophecy ended with Hosea and Zechariah and Malachi, sorry, Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi, um, back about 350 years before Jesus. And I just have to ask the question, where do you get that idea? I can't find it in the Bible anywhere. Over and over and over again, what I find are examples of God giving the gift of prophecy to people um, outside of the context of Israel. Like for instance, um, there's, there's a guy named um, Noah, not an Israelite, not in the land of Israel, and he's given the gift of prophecy. And, and then you've got um, people like Abraham. And Abraham came before Judah, his grandson, right? Great-grandson. Uh, so, so he's not an Israelite, uh, and yet he has the gift of prophecy, and he lives a good portion of his life outside of the land of Israel. And, and then you have uh, Moses, who is given the gift of prophecy in Egypt. So, like, it doesn't really seem to match up. Uh, even Melchizedek, not connected with Israel at all, is a prophet priest of God. 
And Abraham gives tithe to this guy. So, so this just doesn't make sense. I'm going to just strike that argument off the table altogether. And they also argue that Jesus wasn't a descendant of David on his father's side, which is convenient because uh, he didn't have a father on earth. The, the Bible says that he's a descendant of, of uh, King David, and we're going to get to that in just a little bit. But uh, we'll just leave that one on the table. It's an interesting thing to explore. And there's a few other arguments They say that the Messiah would need to fulfill the Torah, for example, and Jesus didn't fulfill the Torah. He didn't draw everybody to to obeying the Torah fully because he broke the Sabbath. Like, you know, when he made mud and healed a guy's eyes on Sabbath and so many other times when he broke the Sabbath, boy, that guy, he was a Torah breaker, not a Torah keeper. Well, okay, I see what they're saying, but when I read the Bible and I read what Jesus did, I see that there is a lot of human philosophy and human doctrines that have been inserted into all the laws, and Jesus was actually weeding through all of that human junk to get to the law of God, and he actually magnified God's law. I'm intrigued by this Jewish response to Jesus because it was Jews that held the oracles of God. It was to the Jews that God sent prophets, and it was the Jews who were responsible for taking those prophecies of God and preserving them through time. And most of us aren't Jews. We're not looking at life through their perspective, most of us. Uh, But there's also this group of people today who come from kind of the opposite direction. Not a skepticism because Jesus didn't do all they expected the Messiah to do, but a skepticism because they're not really sure if this God thing is completely real. And they look at Jesus and say, sure, he might have been a historical figure, but he, he wasn't God. And this Messiah thing, you know, whatever. He's a charismatic leader and he had some good things to say. Let's leave it at that. He's a good man. Now, I believe that we have a good basis to believe that Jesus was much more than a good man. I believe we have a basis to believe that Jesus was the Messiah foretold in prophecy. And I'd like to explore that today. And I want to point out this one thing. If Jesus, if the Messiah's birth um, was foretold and Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies, then how much more confidence can we have in all the other prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled? So let's dive into this, and we're going to look at a few prophecies from the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah, and we'll see if Jesus compares. The first one is that the Messiah would come as a child. Isaiah 9, 6 says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are interesting titles to give to a child. Think about that. The the how, how long father? Everlasting father. You don't call a child everlasting, do you? This is a contradiction. Uh, and, and he says, mighty God. In other words, you're looking for God to come as a child. That's an important point to, to pay attention to. And then it, it doesn't just say he's coming as a child, but it points out his birth. It says that he's going to be born of a virgin. Isaiah seven fourteen is an interesting story. Turn there if you wouldn't mind. Isaiah chapter 7, and you can start in verse 1 and kind of read around as Isaiah gets this command from God. God says, go to King Ahaz. Now, King Ahaz is the father of uh, a guy you might know as Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was a good king. But Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, not a good king. He didn't follow God, and 
So when Isaiah is coming to give him this prophecy, it's a good thing. And Isaiah says, hey, um, well, God told him to say, go to, to meet Ahaz and tell him this. Do not let your heart be afraid because of those two smoldering stumps, Syria and uh, Ephraim. They were coming to attack Israel and, or Judah, and, and Ahaz had good reason to be afraid, afraid, but God said, don't be afraid. And he was going to give him the victory. And then he asked for Ahaz to ask for a sign. Like, what, what sign would you like that God's going to give victory? And, and it's funny how he says it. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Ask anything. Ask me for a sign. And Ahaz says, no. I wonder if God wasn't trying to draw Ahaz's heart. Um, he's like, I'm going to do something for you, and I want you to know that it's me. Um, ask me for a sign, and I'm going to fulfill it. But he says, no, I won't ask for a sign. And so God says, Well, Isaiah says, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. In verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. This is a unique prophecy. God's going to give a sign as high as heaven. And the sign isn't going to be fulfilled in Ahaz's time. It's not going to be fulfilled in all of the time that Israel uh, and Judah exist before Babylon or after until you find one specific instance. A woman conceives without ever having been with a man. Now, some people say virgin could mean just a young woman, but uh, I'm going to challenge that a bit. The, the word virgin that's used here is used nine times in the Old Testament. And for seven of those nine times, it talks about a, a girl that clearly cannot be married and hasn't been with a man. So it, it se- seems like this instance would be consistent with the rest. The other two times, it doesn't talk about a woman at all. Uh, the other two times this u- word is used is in the context of a hymn. It's a type of music. So we've got a, a young lady who's never been with a man who gets pregnant. This is an amazing sign. And what do we call him? We call him God with us. God with us. The author of the Gospel of Matthew repeated this prophecy from Isaiah, and he applied it to Jesus in Matthew one twenty three. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's interesting to point out that very few people in history have had their birth predicted. I did think about it. Isaac, well, that was more like a, a, a conception announcement, right? John, again, a conception announcement. Um, you had Samson, again, a conception announcement. In nine months or a year or so, you're going to have a baby is what they, they were all saying. But in this case, hundreds of years before the Messiah comes, you have the prediction of a very unique kind of birth, something that's different than everything else. Then you have another prophecy. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Look at Micah chapter 5. In Micah chapter 5, we read about this promise that says in verse 2, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who cometh, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This language is very interesting. It's, it's saying there's going to be one, a A a child um, is kind of the idea that's going to come forth, and and he's going to be ruler, but his coming is from old. 
That's kind of like a son will be born and you're going to call him everlasting father, right? This contradiction in ideas, but it's Bethlehem. And Matthew 2, 6 quotes this verse, this chapter and verse in Micah, um, trying to carefully demonstrate that Jesus is fulfilling all these Old Testament prophecies. And, and then there's this time when Jesus was in the middle of his ministry, and uh, somebody points this prophecy out, and he's like, hey, you know, people are saying you're the Christ, but we know the Christ would come from Bethlehem. And where do you come from? You're a Galilean. Uh, read John 7:42. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? But this Jesus, he comes from Nazareth. Well, they didn't really know Jesus' history, did they? Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem, because there was a census and his parents came to Bethlehem, the land of their fathers, the land of David, so that they could be counted. And that's where Jesus was born. Oh, and then there's the, the promise of a star, that he'd be introduced by a star. And this is an interesting story you can find in Numbers chapter 24. And if you remember, the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. They hadn't quite come to the land of Canaan. And there's, uh, they've camped out in this uh, big field, I'm sure, um, that's near the land of a king named Balak. And Balak was afraid of the Jews, and he wanted somebody to come and curse them. He didn't want to go and, and go do war with them because he knew that everybody who fought them lost. And so he wasn't interested in that. He wanted them to be cursed. And so he called for uh, some sorcerer or whatever, and he, he found this guy that had some power. He happened to be a prophet of God, though uh, kind of a disobedient one. And, uh, and so Balaam is called to come curse Israel. And Balaam admits to him, I can't say anything except for what the Lord allows. And then out from his mouth comes these prophecies of blessings. And in Numbers chapter 24, verse 7, he says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That word star is interesting, and these astronomers in Persia around the time of Jesus' birth are paying attention to this text, probably because Daniel was one of the uh, officials in the king's court under both Babylon and Persia. And so when the, the Persians, now not really a, a world empire, when the Persians are, are studying their documents, they find the, the books, the scrolls of the Hebrew scriptures, and they read this text. And it, and it reminds them uh, that this text comes to mind when they see this unique star that they've never seen before seeming to hover low in the sky over the land of Israel. And it was so intriguing to them that they packed up their stuff and they started this long journey to Israel to find out who the king was, which was kind of unfortunate if you remember the story. See, they came to Jerusalem and when they came to Jerusalem, they talked to Herod, the king, the, the guy in charge of that area, and he got jealous when he heard that there was a king that they were looking for, a boy, a child. And so when they left... Uh, he um, set about to uh, eliminate any competition. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, God predicts this jealousy. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Ramah is uh, the place where Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, was buried. And by the time Jeremiah is writing this, this uh, prophecy, Rachel has been dead for hundreds of years. 
So when Jeremiah writes this, it's really fascinating because he writes it in the context of a promise. Israel is going to Babylon. That's the guarantee. But the promise is that God would bring them back. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. And, and then he says that the people would come back in repentance. And he says, he who scattered Israel will, will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. And he talks about young women rejoicing and dancing because they've come back to the land of promise, which happens, right? They come back to this land of promise. Um, but then he also promises in the context of this blessing and this wonderful stuff, he promises that there'll be mourning. Now, what's interesting is that the, uh, when you look at the whole promise, it includes the promise of the Messiah. And the Messiah doesn't come right after they get back to Babylon. And they've got all kinds of problems. There's all kinds of issues in, in their religious and their faith. It's all kinds of issues with the people around them. And, and they just seem to struggle for the next 400 years or so. And then the Messiah comes. And, they, and the Messiah, Jesus, is welcomed by, by shepherds. Uh, by the townspeople in Bethlehem, uh, by prophets at, uh, at the, the temple. Um, he's, he's welcomed by angels singing and um, officials from other countries coming and giving him gifts. He's welcomed with praise and, and wonderful things. And yet in the context of that wonderful welcome, there is great mourning. Matthew 2.16 says, Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, thankfully, an angel had warned uh, Joseph that this was going to happen, that, that he needed to get out, and so they fled. And where did they flee to? They fled to Egypt. And there's a prophecy. Uh, Hosea 11.1 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. They went by night, they fled to Egypt, and they waited until Herod was dead. And when Herod was dead, they came back, and where did they live? They lived in Nazareth. Now, interesting, interestingly, when Hosea 11.1 1 says, out of Egypt, I called my son, the context is not referring back to the Israelites fleeing Egypt. The context is looking forward to the Messiah. My son is uh, focused here on the Messiah. And, and so when he says, out of Egypt, I called my son, and then Jesus comes back out of Egypt, it's no coincidence. He's fulfilled this prophecy. But then they come back to Nazareth, and this is an interesting one, because in Matthew 2.23, the author of Matthew says, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, if you do a research project on this uh, particular prophecy, you'll find there was no such prophecy, which makes you wonder, what did Matthew mean? Well, do a little bit more digging, and you'll find that uh, in Isaiah 11.1, 1, in Jeremiah 23.5, and 33.15, in Zechariah 3.8, and 6.12, the Bible refers to the Messiah as the righteous branch. The righteous branch. Now, there's uh, not a clear prophecy about Nazareth, but the word Nazareth comes from the root uh, netzer. And uh, let's see, I've got it here somewhere. Well, anyway, there it is. I've got, I was looking in my notes to find it. Netzer. So the, the word netzer means branch or shoot. 
And it's kind of referring to this idea that a tree has been cut down and then the shoot comes up from the side. You've seen that before. Um, So this is a branch, a shoot coming up. And uh, interestingly, um, it describes, uh, the, the Bible describes the Messiah as a branch coming from the the, the stump of Jesse. So we've got this comparison, the Messiah, the righteous branch, and this idea of Nazareth, the name being branch or shoot. Uh, but then you've got uh, places like John 1, 6, 46, where Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And you have other prophecies, a bunch of them in the Bible that's talking about the, the, uh, the Messiah, like Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Can anything good come from that place? And, and the reality about Jesus' experience is that he, he's both the root, or the, the branch rather, that comes out of uh, uh, Jesse, and he's the one despised. And, and all of that seems to be, not coincidentally, bound up in the name Nazareth. He also is said to come from the line of King David. And uh, Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 spend a whole lot of time trying to demonstrate that Jesus is a descendant of David. These genealogies are strange, though. Have you ever looked at them? If you, if you compare them side by side, uh, they both go back to King David, and then they're pretty much identical from there on back. Uh, But up to King David, they're completely different genealogies. It's like Jesus has a different family tree. And uh, and so there's all these different ways that people try to figure out what it means. Both of them end in Joseph. um, And so you think, well, Joseph, maybe one of them is, he's like the son-in-law. And so some people say the Luke 3 genealogy is actually Mary's genealogy. And John is mentioned, or Joseph rather, is mentioned in there uh, as the, the uh, husband of Mary, right? He's the, um, the son-in-law of Heli, uh, the, the father that's mentioned there. And, and that may be true, but I don't really find it in the text. It's just speculation. And then uh, others say, well, this is all just theological, right? It's, it's meant to teach a lesson. And that one's popular with a lot of people because it just kind of makes it easy. Um, you don't have to worry too much about it. There, there's a theological intent, like look for the meaning there and, and you'll find all these cool things in the names, which is true. You can find cool things. Uh, but I like the explanation that, that goes like this. In, Matthew, in Matthew's genealogy, look at verse 15 and 16 and you'll see this. It says... Eliud, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Notice there it says, Mary, of whom Jesus was born. The emphasis in Matthew is on on Mary, not on Joseph. In Luke, it ends with Joseph, who is said to be the father of Jesus. That's that's where it ends. But here, it ends with Mary, who is the mother of Jesus, of, of, of whom Jesus was born. And, and so if you just go back and look at one, one previous word there, you'll see that Joseph is called the husband of Mary. But that word husband in Greek, it just means man, andros. It's, it's Joseph the andros of Mary, right? Um, if I were to ask you ladies who your man is, who would you say? Uh, if you're married, you'd turn to your husband, right? And you'd say, oh, this is my man. But girls, what about you? If you're not married, who's your man? Your daddy's your man. 
And it can mean husband, but it can also mean father. And so there's an interesting idea, an interesting suggestion, which not many people agree with, which is okay. (laughs) But it's an interesting suggestion that maybe the Joseph at the end of the the genealogy in Matthew is actually the, the mother, or sorry, the father of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Either way, um, you have this line going all the way back to David and even back to, uh, to Abraham. Isaiah 11.1 1 says that the, the Messiah would come as a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jeremiah 23.5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now, we could even go back farther than David if we wanted to, because the Bible promises um, Judah that he would be the father of the Messiah. It promises Isaac that he would be the father of the Messiah. And it promises Abraham that he would be the father of the Messiah. You could even go back all the way to Eve, who is promised to be the mother of the seed that would save mankind, the Messiah. So uh, David is kind of the the dividing point here. But but we can go all the way back to, to Adam if we want to. It's interesting to look at this, though. What if Jesus didn't go back to David, right? What if you look at those genealogies and you find some problem with it and you look at at it skeptically? Maybe you just realize that Jesus was a bastard child who didn't have a dad, right? And you can't trace his lineage through David because his dad's lineage, that's adoption. That doesn't count. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, when somebody addressed him on the subject of his lineage, they said uh, that, that the Messiah, shouldn't he be the, the son of David? And in Matthew 22, verses 43 to 45, Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls the Messiah Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls the Messiah Lord, how is the Messiah David's son? I think about this. Not only is the Messiah David's son, but the Messiah is David's creator. And Luke makes sure to point out that when you go through that lineage, you end up with Adam. And it goes like this in Luke 3.38. The son of Seth, this is uh, talking about Jesus, right? The son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Who made Adam? Jesus did. The Messiah made Adam. He's the father of all mankind. And so he can be the the shoot that comes up from the root of Jesse because he's he's the father of Jesse. He made that whole line. It doesn't, it's not a problem for Jesus. Now there's uh, all kinds of other prophecies about Jesus. Prophecies that deal with his, his ministry. Um, Isaiah 53 describes Jesus as a suffering sacrificial lamb. Um, there's this 490-year prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 that, that ends in uh, these critical dates. Uh, you can get it down to A.D. 27 and A.D. 31. And at those times, Jesus in A.D. 27 was baptized and introduced into ministry. And in A.D. 31, he was crucified on a cross. And the promise in Daniel says that he would be cut off, not for himself, but for his people. And we could add all kinds of other prophecies. He would enter Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, Zechariah 9.9 says. He would be betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41.9 says. The betrayal would be for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11.12 says. The money would be used to purchase 
a potter's field, Zechariah 11.13 says. The Messiah would die a sacrificial death. You can find that in Daniel 9.26 and Isaiah 53.8. He would die with criminals, but he'd be buried with the wealthy, uh, Isaiah 53.9 says. He would rise from the dead, Psalm 16.8-11 promises, and Isaiah 53.10 as well. And then he would say these certain words on the cross, he would be mocked and people would gamble for his clothes. You can find that in, in, in Psalm chapter 22. For Jesus to fulfill even a handful of these prophecies, it would be a statistical, well, we'll just call it a statistical feat. It would be incredible. A group of 600 university students over 12 different classes at Westmont College attempted to calculate the probability of any one man fulfilling just eight of these prophecies. Think about that for a statistics project in college. Uh, They debated and evaluated until even the most skeptical of the students was confident in their numbers. And then the professor whittled the numbers down even farther and made them more conservative. And then he involved all kinds of other people uh, from outside the Christian faith even to look at the, 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 the numbers and see if they were right. And they whittled them down even more. And after examining these eight different prophecies, they conservatively estimated that the chance of one man fulfilling all eight prophecies was one in 10 to the 17. That's 10 with 17 zeros after it. Now, it might be difficult to comprehend what that means, so we'll just put it into some, some real visual terms. If you were to take a piece of paper and put an X on it, fold it up, and put it with 10 other folded pieces of paper in a basket, and then ask some blindfolded person to uh, randomly pick from the basket the one that has an X on it, what's your statistical probability of choosing the correct one the first time? One in 10. Okay, now add 17 zeros to the end of that, and this is what we're trying to do. So take a silver dollar and, and uh, get 10 to the 17 of those silver dollars. They would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. Put an X on one of those silver dollars, mix it up really, really well, and then have a blindfolded person walk on top of those two feet deep of silver dollars and tell him he could go as far as he wanted and take as long as he wanted. And the chance of him picking up that silver dollar the first time that he bent down to pick one up, the chance of him picking it up would be the same chance as the Messiah fulfilling uh, these eight prophecies. And, And this would be from all the people from the time of the prophets that were, they were giving the prophecy until our day today, 10 to the 17 power. That's an incredible statistical feat for one man to fulfill even eight of the prophecies. And I've mentioned quite a bit more than eight. You can find some 300 of them about the Messiah. It is rational, I believe, to recognize that Jesus is not just a mere man from history. Uh, Jesus, Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. And he is, uh, according to the Bible and according to his own words, he is God himself with us. He's not just a mere man. And, and while it's rational co- to consider this, and it's been hopefully interesting to you as it was fun for me to explore these, these uh, scriptures, God invites us to something that's deeper than just an intellectual recognition that Jesus is the Messiah. You could think of Jesus as a good guy. But I think if you were to be clear with your own heart, you couldn't say Jesus is just a good guy. 
C.S. Lewis approaches this and he says it like this, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. I believe Jesus fulfilled this large number of detailed prophecies. And as I study them in their context, what I see is this great desire for the God of the universe, the creator of mankind to be back in connection with us. He is full of steadfast love and yet he keeps being repulsed by the object of his love, you and me. You are the object of God's love. In John 3.16, if you don't mind me doing a little contextualization, it goes like this. For God so loved you that he gave his only son that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have eternal life. What will you do with Jesus? This is the, the real question of Christmas. It's like God, Emmanuel, God with us, is standing at your door this Christmas season. And he's not some uh, annoying relative. He's the father that you've always wanted. He's the one who's most passionate about your life and your good. And he's knocking at your door, asking to come in. He's not the UPS driver delivering your Amazon packages for your Christmas gifts. He is the one who wants you to have a good life and more than just good things. This Christmas, Jesus is asking to come into your heart and to your family. Will you open your door to Jesus this Christmas? Let's stand together and we'll sing our closing hymn. Our closing hymn this morning is number 